0: You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Tonight on TopCast, I'd like to welcome another pinball game designer. This gentleman worked I uh, for Gottlieb for a number of years and also did some work with Sega slash Stern. Special guest,
1: special guest, special guest, special
0: guest. Tonight I'd like to welcome John Norris to Topcast. We're we'll going to be talking to John about his pinball collecting years and how he got involved in pinball and how he eventually became a designer for Gottlieb and then later moved over to Sega slash Stern and did some game designs for them, too. So we're going to give John a call right now on the phone. Hello? John, it's Clay. Okay, uh, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, well... John, you know, you've, you've kind of had a long history in pinball and I see you've been, you kind of started out as a collector first before you became a designer. Why don't you tell me how you got into pinball, uh, you know, your first memories of it and, and, and how you ultimately got to becoming a designer?
1: Well, that's kind of a long story, but I'll be, go at the beginning. The first time I remember playing pinball was, uh, we, I was with my family and we were, in Santa barbara it's kind of a it's like a coastal town here that has it's four big people on vacation and things. Then they had an arcade and where I lived, the pinball is illegal in a lot of territories in California, but back when I was growing up, so you know looking back there are a lot of places where it was legal but I just have didn't happen to go you know so basically the cities I was in didn't have pinball and and there was an arcade, and I was there was like a flea market downstairs and an arcade upstairs. So the family was in this flea market, and I ventured upstairs and discovered a whole room full of pinball machines. And all that I can remember was that the first game I played was red, and that it must have been a manual lift because I remember that I got two balls. So, like, when you when you lifted the ball up, there were it would put two balls into the runway instead of one, and that would I was probably maybe nine or ten years old at the time. And then many years went by. So that's my first recollection of playing. But then many years went by, and my very first job I had when I was basically um, had just graduated high school, I was working for a bicycle shop, and. An operator came by and put in a candy machine, and then he asked the owner of the bike shop if he wouldn't mind um, a pinball machine, too, because there was a little area where the candy machine was, and there was plenty of room to put in the game. Of course, the owner said, you know, when he heard there was 50-50 split and all that good stuff, he said, go ahead and put it in. And that game was a Sweethearts, and that was basically, the you know, the game I was working there, you know, you just to start playing it every day, and and um, then after a while, you know, I got to like pinball, and would go out at that point, go and search them out, and I, there were miniature places like miniature golf courses and um, other places. This would be the early '70s that had pinball machines.
0: So, so you mean they put a, a 1963 Gottlieb Sweetheart in in the, in the '70s? So, a, kind of an older game for that time. Sure
1: that the paint was so worn off, you couldn't read it, and that the light insert, basically that was the all rollover special light insert. You couldn't read what it was, what would light it. and We always wondered what would light it, and all of a sudden, one day, we got that all rollover special lit, and that light came on, and every rollover gave a replay. So that was, that was, this operator was getting all of his money's worth out of, at at that time, a 10-year-old game. And uh, of course, you know, if you look nowadays, you see a lot of games that are 10 years old or older being operated. So, um, but, but that was it. And then the owner of the bike shop saw that we were putting all our money into this machine, and he went down to um, C.A. Robinson and bought a Gulfstream. So he basically kicked out the operator's pinball and put in his own. And, uh, and, and we, and that was kind of when I got, started to get good at pinball. It was like, you know, because basically we could play for free and, uh, he would just open the door and rack up credits whenever it was slow and we would play pinball. Yeah. And, uh, and then when I was, you know, at the time I was going to college and I started playing pinball in, um, bowling alleys, one of my favorite locations was Huntington Lanes and Huntington Beach, which, is, and Kona Lanes and Costa Mesa, which are no longer there. And uh and then when I transferred to the university they had a student union there that this at this point be the late seventies and um they had um a mix of electromechanicals and so, that's when the first All State games started coming out. And at that point I, I um decided to to start collecting games. And uh I had a small collection. I, I met Sam Harvey, it must have been 78 or so when I met Sam, and at the time, he only had a dozen games, and, and I was just starting a collection, and uh, I played Sam's games, and liked Slick Chick needed these games I'd never played before, and, and, and so him and Russ were on the lookout to get me Slick Chick, and you know, it was kind of this grass, pinball collecting is very grassroots where there were only a few people who knew each other, and there were no conventions, and... Basically anything that was organized back in those days. And, uh.
0: now wait, how did, how did you find Russ Jensen and Sam Harvey? Uh, you know, two guys are like very early on were collectors. How did you find these guys?
1: With, with Sam and Russ, it was, there was a magazine called Amusement Review that Jim Tolbert put out. And it would probably be about 78. And he was just trying to start a a magazine and somehow Russ and Sam and me all found out about this magazine and we all I I think I put an ad in or something, one of old pinball machines and that's something at one point. I remember Russ was calling me and we were talking we talked on the phone for a while. And then later on, he called me, oh, there's another collector near you, his name's Sam, and he gave me Sam's number, and, and, uh, and I called Sam and came over and visited him, and, in the house that he still lives in, and, uh, and that's how I met those guys, and there were no shows yet, and then there was the, um the fun fair, where we went to and we met more people, and, you know, the fun fair is one of those, like Chicago line shows, it's basically jukebox slot machines, but there are some pinballs, and uh, so we we went to that show. And this would be probably late seventies or early eighties. We went to that show every year, and then then in the in the I think it was eighty five because we knew Rob Burke also because I remember talking to him on the phone sometimes, and then all of a sudden he decided he's going to do a pinball expo. Well
0: wait 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 wait. Wait, wait, before we talk about Rob Burke and the Pinball Expo, something I've always kind of wondered was, what was the population of games? I, I find that on west of the Mississippi, pinballs seem to be much more rare than on the Midwest and the East Coast. Did you have any, I mean, did you have to go long and hard to find, you know, games for sale or games to play in California?
1: Yes, at that time I did because I was trying to start a collection. And for example, one of my early wood rails was a dragonette, and it was up in Portland, Oregon, and Russ found out about the game, and I drove all, this is from Los Angeles, I drove all the way up to Portland, Oregon, which is probably a thousand miles each way, just to get the game. Wow. And, uh, you know, it was, there was also, a newspaper, one of those newspapers that people put free ads in called The Recycler that you would basically, there were no other really pinball collectors competing, so you would just look for any pinballs for sale in The Recycler and, you know, and basically call and go over and look at the games because a lot of times that Sam and I would go out on, from ads in The Recycler and sometimes we'd find two or three ads and go and, on a on a you know a Sunday or a Saturday game hunt to to, to uh, look up on these games with down in the recycler. And Then as years went on and the hobby became you know more established, then that became tough because you had to get the recycler early and, and and call before the other collector called. But you know in the early years there was wasn't really that stress to do that because there was no one else looking for games.
0: Now, how did you know about, you know, you started playing in the wood, or in the metal rail era, in the, you know, games from the 60s. How did you know about wood rails? I mean, a lot of people don't, you know, I talk to, they've never even seen a wood rail before, you know, and, and, and what type of prices were you paying back then, too?
1: Well, uh, it was Sam. Sam basically told me about them because he remember playing, because um, he, had, he had been a player since the, uh, basically, late 50s. And, uh, and then I was also working part-time for, um uh, a route operator doing his repairs. And, and my, my first, my first wood rail was at one of the bars where we had a pool table work, where, where I don't know, cause I was just his, his employee, but where the operator had a pool table, cigarette machine, jukebox, and pinball machine. The bar made there. You know, new die-picks games, and she asked me one day what this old game was worth. And it was a a Gottlieb Twin Bill, and uh, I had no idea. And she said that you know, you know, you know, if you want it, you can pay a hundred, you can, you know, give me a hundred dollars and come get it. So I went and, and and picked up the Twin Bill, and I'd really never played Wood before that, and I just it was just a wonderful game. I just fell in love with that game. And uh, at that point, I started to look for wood rails. Well, well, Twin Bill
0: is is actually probably one of the better single player wood rails from the nineteen fifties. Certainly from the mid fifties, it's a great game.
1: It is a a great game, and and I, uh, you know, I paid I paid one hundred dollars for that game. I think that in the late seventies and throughout the eighties. I paid typically between $100 and $300 for each wood rail. And the, at the time, cause this was by when, after I got moved to Chicago, where there are many more wood rails, that I would go to the Chicago Land show on Friday morning when the trucks came in. And all these guys had, you know, were there of booths selling jukeboxes, slot machines, and and more, you know, non-pinball, and they every once in a while they'd have a pinball with them, and they would basically just want you to, they wouldn't even want to bring you inside. They just wanted to sell out of the back of their truck. And at the, in the early years, like 86 or 87, there were no other collectors there. So I would get there, and I would be buying I think one stud lunch one must have bought eight or ten games, you know, because no one, no one else wanted them. Of course, in later years, by the time you got into the 90s, in the Pinball Expo had established and, and there were more collectors, then it was a more difficult um, to find them because there were a lot of other people looking for them at the same time. But um, I think that, you know, I was paying rarely rarely over $500 for a wood rail, and at that time it, they had to be um, just a mint game. You know, these are the years before eBay because... When I see when I sold my collection, I was forced to sell my collection. I was basically selling it for what I my collection for what I paid for the games because the value hadn't appreciated. And, and the poetic irony was, just three or four years later, when eBay came out and all of a sudden everybody everybody could the whole country could bid on the games. You know, the prices doubled and tripled, and, and were five times now what they were when I sold them uh, just ten years ago.
0: What was now? What was your attraction to to the wood rails opposed to you know wedge heads or or, or, or even solid state games?
1: Well, I always liked the game rules because the, um, the the designer didn't have a lot of budget to work with, so he had to make a fun to play game in the game rules department. And I was kind of always a game rules specialist, so. They were almost like my things to study. You know, they, these were really cool. Like he, he did that was his two or three relays. You know, you know in, in the um, in the wedge heads were basically the same. I I, I like the Wedgeheads just as much. I mean, you know, I would say from 1951 through the last wedge head, there were, there were just a lot of really good games. In the single player games I liked because they were jackpot games so that, you know, when you got the special lit, you could, you know, win five or ten games. You know, it was kind of the, the skill to luck ratio was such that, that the designers could put those features in the games because the good players couldn't dominate the game. You didn't have ball time of two or three minutes of ball. You had game, t- you had, you had ball time of 30 to 40 seconds. And a lot of, a lot of luck factor, wh- whether you lost the ball or not. So, with those ingredients, you could make a game where when you lit the special, they lit the rest of the game and you, you could win, you know, basically get the game up to the credit limit. Now, what
0: about, what about Williams and Bally games? How did you, how did you, uh, how did you like those or dislike those?
1: Well, some, some uh, I may, mostly liked Gottlieb's uh, you know, there, I played everybody's games and and you know Williams had some really really good games too uh, at Valley of course Valley's 50s games which are you know I had never really played the ball the pop in or circus or any of those uh, 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 until, you know the last 10 or 15 years because they, they just I just never saw any but Williams games. You know, all, all the companies, even Valley Games, you know, going into the 70s and um, and forward made made a lot of really good games, too. But, you know, it was just, I guess, it was just, uh, you know, the, the first love was always the, the Gottlieb games. And that's uh, my collection centered around the Gottlieb games. But I also had a lot of the great Williams games, like Four Roses and... Um, and, uh, and and uh, and there were some really good games like Hotline and things. I mean, they they made some really terrific games in the um you know in the electromechanical era. You know, Gulfstream that was the game that really got me as a you know that I played a lot. And uh, and they had that inter- interesting combination of the replay and Add-a-ball in one game. I mean, you know, it was Gulfstream was a game where you could. It wasn't ball in play, it was balls to play. It started off with five balls to play, and some of the features awarded you you know, additional balls, and some of the features awarded you replays. So you could get up to, you know, it's like an add-a-ball, you could keep the game going indefinitely, but you could also win replays doing other things. So that was an interesting combination that, at the time, I didn't know how cool or novel it was, but looking back, there were only a few games that, that were that had that feature.
0: Now, back to, um, oh, I forgot to ask you, you, you said you went to college. Where did you go to school and what did you graduate in? And out of college, what, where were you working to be able to afford to buy these games?
1: I, I went to um, Cal State Fullerton, and I, gra- I graduated in 81 with a bachelor's degree in art and with a, with a photo and, and design emphasis. And then I had uh, a friend in Northern California, I was living in Southern California at the time, and I had, you know, I just loved pinball and I wanted to get it the pinball industry. At the time, Atari was making pinball games. And I had a, a friend who worked for Atari, and he said that there's a possibility that that I could get, you know, get a job there, because I just got, a, I was just out of school at the time, I guess their Atari was having really good sales with, you know, their, their games. So I basically moved up there to try to, try to get into Atari, and I could never get in, um, but I ended up getting a job working for Underwriters Laboratories as a report writer. So that, that's when I started, you know, making enough money with a real job, To be able to start to, to get a a small, you know, a collection and, and say I was, really wasn't, I had a pretty small collection up until I was working for Gottlieb. I think when I moved to Chicago, I brought, I probably brought about 10 games with me to Chicago. I think I had to sell about 10 games at the time, or maybe 15 or 20 games, uh, out of my mini storage in California because uh, the deal with when they, I was hired by Gottlieb is that they would pay for my move by by a Ryder truck, so they would let me. They would reimburse me for the rental of the Ryder truck. So I basically went down and rented the biggest truck I could legally drive, and loaded as many games as I could into it, and uh, had to sell the rest. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Now, you did you go to the first Pin Rob Burke Pinball Expo in 1985? Yes, I did. And how did you find out about that? I
1: Got the job with uh, Gottlieb. Oh,
0: you, okay. Well, explain.
1: Well, I had done this. Yeah, you know, when I was working at Underwriters Laboratories, I was you know I was a big pinball nut and playing pinball, and I decided to make a game, make a custom pinball machine. And I made made a game, and actually it had it on location and for a while and um, and then I took pictures of it, and I think I had video, a videotape of it or something, and then I made like a little resume and made a lot of play field layouts, and and I think what I did was when I went to Chicago to the first pinball expo, knowing that this is my first time to really be able to give resumes to the pinball companies, I took advantage of it, and I, I gave one resume to each pinball company at the time. I think there were I think five at the time five pinball companies that were at the pinball expo. There, the Williams, Valley, Gottlieb, Game Plan, and
0: Stern maybe.
1: No, Stern has Stern had already uh, had already liquidated. Maybe it was just those four. I remember I brought five resumes with me, but maybe I uh, brought one back and didn't get it. Give it out, but. And, and, and this would be, you know, Pinball Expo is always in the fall. And, you know, I was just, you know, a young kid and would, would love to get into pinball design. And then, but really didn't think I'd ever hear back from any of these companies. So my plan with at the time was to build what I called an emulator. And it was a pinball cabinet where there were plugs in the cabinet so that I could make a pinball play field and screw the parts on and then plug each of the parts, like the flipper and the pop-upper and, and the slingshots, into his board so I could I could experiment with all these different play field layouts. And I was going to build this action emulator and actually ship it to Chicago and, and get a, well, I was going to get a booth and have this thing with all these different play fields and, and show how I, I could plug one play field in and you know, in two minutes, or, or, you know, change play fields over, and I was probably going to have like three play fields with me. But, uh, but, 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 as I was just getting started on that project, I got a call from Gil Pollock. And he asked me, he had my resume, and he asked me if I knew how to program, you know, games. And he needed a sound programmer. And I said, no, I go, I, I, you know, I, I, I really don't know how to, to do that. I could learn, but, you know, and I'd be, at the time I'd be obviously be willing to to go there and learn, but, but they weren't really looking for a trainee; they're looking for someone who could come up and, 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 and be productive. But then I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm always willing to uh, come in as a junior designer, pinball designer." And, and then then we talked for a while, and just you know, whatever, and and then that probably was a month or two after Pinball Expo, and then in May of that year, which would be 86th, because Pimple Expo would have been like October or probably October or November of 85, and then the next year, in the February, or so I got the call from Gil about the sound programmer job, which I didn't qualify for, but then in probably late April, I got another call from Gil and saying that, you know, they're doing well, and and they'd like to uh, bring me, to fly me to Chicago for an interview.
0: Purchase. Now wait wait wait. When the game, you said that you you designed your own game and were operating it. Was it electromechanical or was it solid state?
1: It was a hybrid. It was it was a solid state. It was a Stern Stars that, that, that I used to you know to, make, to to convert over into Tour de France, which is which was the game I made. But then there were some features that I wanted to add that I didn't know how to program or do that. So I put step switches and, and relays and things in that, and, and that, that would be electromechanical circuits. So it's a hybrid of the two. So basically it was, it was a step switch that every time you hit a target it would advance a light in, on the play, play field insert. When it got to the end it was special with light and then whenever you hit it, at that point the relay the relay that click would just would just close the switch to the ad credit to the to an ad credit um like a coin slot switch. Right. So I basically kind of was kind of just made a hybrid and the thing that, that game had the first was that it was the first game that ever have music. Because I this was like I copied um this is novelty what they did in their video games is they had Like an eight track. And then whenever the game was on, it would play music. And no pinball had done that. They had, like, Flash where you just played a sound that got louder and louder or higher and higher, but no pinball really ever played music. So I I did is I took a, it was a cassette, it was a boombox I put, and I got one of those endless cassettes that's six minutes long and uh, recorded. The soundbox Tour to France, in that whatever the clipper-enabled relay was on, it would call it, it would turn the boombox on.
0: Right. The reason why I asked that is, I, uh, I you know, I, I thought maybe you had to do some programming, and that you know that would have made some decision on the, at the Gottlieb job.
1: No, I, I, um, I, I didn't. I basically didn't didn't know any programming. I knew pinball real well. And I love pinball and I was enthusiastic and I think that's probably more or less what, you know, weighed their decision. They, I was only brought in as a junior designer. I was basically just working on other designers' projects for the first year or two. I, 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 made, I made a couple of my own games, but they were never ever really considered to go into production, so I was still learning, you know, how to make a, manu- a game that was, uh, a field that was manufacturable. It's one thing to have a, a play field layout in your head, but another, another thing for it to go down the assembly line. So I was basically, the, the first year and a half, first so of all, was just learning. You know, and I, I, I would stand other, the designing of John Trudeau and Joe Camico or the designers, and I would work on their on their games, help build them, help wire them, and then basically just learn. So that's why you didn't, you know, I went to work there in 86, but I, you didn't see a game for... You know, until, I think it was 88, when Diamond Lady came out. So,
0: And how did you get that? How did they uh, uh, promote you to having your own game? Because Diamond Lady, you worked on by yourself, right? No, there wasn't any other designer that helped you?
1: Right. It was my first first game that I did myself, because I I would basically... At the you know at the time of year working on other designers' games, there's a lot of holes in time. Like you have to wait on something, then I can go back and work on my game. And, and I got the the prototype up and uh, a white wood that I built, and uh, and it was kind of you know people liked it. And it was kind of fun to shoot. You know, it was a fun to shoot play field. And Gil gave the thumbs up on the game. We're gonna make that game. And, uh, and, and at the, at the time, Ray had, Ray Tantor had his first game too. Uh, and, um, and, uh, so we were basically, at that time, John Trudeau had done everything, and now, now there were, the company went from having one designer to having three designers. Because Ray, Ray had Arena as his first game, and right after Arena it was Diamond Lady, which was my first game. Now,
0: how was working with the system ADB board set, and who was doing that? Like, if you were doing these Whitewoods, who was doing the programming for you, you know, to to support your designs?
1: I was actually doing the programming. I had learned assembly. At that time, I had learned assembly language programming. so I would make the basic program, and, uh, you know, they didn't have any bells and whistles, but it would kick the ball out of the hole and score the points, or... You know, do because uh, there was a lot of jump to subroutines, and the subroutines are in the operating system, so you just call it subroutines from from the library in the operating system. So it really wasn't that complicated to make a game. You know, the ball goes in the hole, it it advances a value and scores points and kicks the ball out or whatever, and and you know. So the the, the limitation I had with System 80 B was that you couldn't really do anything. You couldn't put any really cool features in the game. That's why when my first System 3 game came out, it had so many features because I had to wait and wait and wait to put these features on a game because the system wasn't, you know, the earlier system wasn't capable of putting a lot of those features on the game.
0: Now, you, you did Diamond Lady by yourself, but then the next game, it looked like the next game you did was Robo War, and you did that with John Trudeau. Why, now, why did John help you on that game?
1: Well John, Rebel War was a John Trudeau game. Oh, okay. He he's he's a, he, he it was his play field layout. You see what I would do on, in those days was I would basically if I did a game, I would do the play field and rules for the game. It was you know, I did both the play field and rules. It's kinda of like we write a song, you do the, the lyrics and the music but a lot of the other designers didn't really want to be bothered with writing the rules, uh, and I, they would let me do rule sets for their games. And that was basically all throughout Gottlieb. Yeah, so I was on a lot of games, I would just write the rules, and basically that frees the designer, because then the designer doesn't sit there and need to, to, to tweak the rules with the programmer. They can spend all their time doing the mechanicals and engineering and, and, all, uh, and getting it ready for the assembly line and, and basically managing the project. Cause basically at, at Gottlieb, the game designer was also the project manager. Where, my favorite part was the rules. So, I, so even if I was working on my own game, I, I'd a lot of times be working on the other designers. I'd design rule sets for the other designers' games. Then I'd probably put more time and effort into doing that rule set for their game than I would have won for my own game.
0: Now, Diamond Lady sold about twenty seven hundred units. Where you must have been pretty proud of your accomplishment.
1: Yeah, I I, I was. I, um, if I recall, France just loved the game. And, you know, France. You know, we, we sold a lot of games to France. And, you know, at the time they were one of our main customers. But you know, France was it was a um, a really big hit over there. And uh, and you know, I was. Looking back at the game, the game was way too hard, you know, for the average players. It was like, it took me a few games to learn to design games for the average everyday person and just wanting to have fun for three or four minutes rather than trying to design games for upper level players, you know. I was a good player and I was basically designing games to challenge me on some of my early games. Then as as the time went on, I, I learned to basically design games... That would try to appeal to uh, the beginners, medium, you know, skill levels, and advanced players. So basically, uh, when I look back at Diamond Lady, it was that was a, that was one difficult game. There were a couple things that I wasn't allowed to do on that game because I was uh, it was my first game, and I was told I had to do it a certain way. And one was the um, the kickback on the on the drain, because I wanted it to do like Williams did it, where when you lit it, it would stay lit until the player used it, and I was overruled that, that it would time out once it was lit. So the player would have to keep trying to requalify it and requalify it, and that was the, weak, the weakest part of that game was it should have just stayed lit and mm. until the player used it and then would have to do something at that point to try to relight it again. So maybe it would be more di- difficult the second time and even more difficult the third time and so on, but, but I was kind of overruled on that. The other thing I wanted to do is I wanted to put a Playmore post in the game, and they didn't want to put the time and money into, you know, making molds and things to put a Playmore post, because God did not have a Playmore post that went between the flippers. So I had to be creative, and I put the drop target there, so the player got one save. So the ball would hit the drop target and get saved, and the the drop target would go down.
0: Now, the, the, what did you just call it? A playmore post? You're talking about an up post between the flippers?
1: Yes. Gotcha.
0: Like a ball save.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, uh, like Bally used a lot in the 70s. Right. You know, so, you know, so it was one of, you know, Williams and Bally had it, but Gottlieb never had it. And ironically, it was, the, I finally got it on uh, Mario Andretti, which was my last game for Gottlieb. But, you know, I eventually got one, but it took several years to get it. Huh.
0: Hmm. now you did um it looks like you did bad girls after diamond lady and and you're and working uh, on robo war what was tell me about that one
1: so bad girls was supposed to be kind of they kind of wanted a remake of eight ball deluxe and uh so i so bad girl is kind of eight ball deluxe-ish but it's different and has different, you know, different rules and stuff, and, uh, and as a matter of trivia for for um, Bad Girls is there are 10 Bad Girls in this world with System 3 in it, because that's the game System 3 was tested in. Hmm.
0: Yeah, but it was a System 80B game, right?
1: It's a System 80B game, but there are 10 Bad Girls that we made that we sent all over different, you know different places to have system three in it so if somebody ever comes up with a system three bad girls they have, they have themselves a rare game hmm. Interesting. As a, it's a matter of trivia a, trivia a trivia item
0: yeah no that's that's great i, I love that stuff
1: hmm. but but you know that that was a another one of those game early games for me that was basically way too hard for the average player and uh and uh, you know, if I had it, if I had to do over again, I would have made it a little more user you know user friendly and, and and so on. But that was a, a kind of a brutal game. You know, it had a very short ball time and and it had a lot of features, a lot of specials and things. It was probably one of the last Saw State games that had a bunch of specials on it. Uh, it probably had three or four different specials. You know, kind of like the originally Ball Deluxe had a lot of specials, but. Uh, you know, it was just a few years later, a game would be lucky to have one special on it, and it was usually in the outlane. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah, because basically, specials were you know it's kind of like a consolation in the outlane. You know, it's going to drain anyways, but you get you know you win a game.
1: Yeah, but that was basically kind of going into the nineties. A special, and the reason why is I've done I've spent a lot of thinking about it, and the reason why is because the games got had too much of a skill to luck, too much of a skill factor in the skill-to-luck ratio. And if you had specials, good players could sit there and stay on the game all day, you know, back by the time you got to the 90s, because the ball time had increased, and, uh, and there was less luck factors to make the ball drain and ball in and so on. So you really couldn't put specials on games anymore, because you'd get, you know, someone at the time, like me, on a, on a game, and, and I could stay there all day, and the operator operator's not gonna make any money. But you know, up up until, but, you know, up until uh, the mid eighties, you could put specials on a game because the, um, there were enough. You know, there wasn't the, the drains were a little bigger, and, and the distance between the flippers was a little further apart, and so there were other factors that could that would that would unless you know, the player was really lucky. Had that long, long winning streak where they can just keep winning and winning and winning. Although I remember I raid on the lux, I could stay on by on the lux. back when I was a player, I could stay on there on the lux as long as I wanted to. And a lot of times, the operators in the places I used to go would would ask me not to come in at certain hours. You know, that were the, that their busy hours when they made the money. And if, if I did so, they'd let me stay on the game. And in the off hours. Huh. And there were a couple times I remember when, when there was one point when I was playing a game, and, and the owner of the arcade walked over and turned the game off and said that this game is out of order. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> this games out of order. You know, gave me gave me a token or whatever for another game, and I'm sure the moment I left that that game was turned back on. But, but you know, but that was the you know, the going back to the specials is that. If I were, if I were to ever get back into pinball, I would try to design games that have shorter ball time and uh, and a little bit, little bit more um, luck, luck in the luck to skill ratio, and bring the special back. Hmm. You know, give give the players because I remember back when I was just learning, that was that was the reason why I played pinball, is because other things. You, know, you you play, and when your game was over, it was over. But with pinball, if you got if you really executed your shots, or you got lucky, you, you could you could win several games in a row before you had to put money in the game again. And that, that, those days are lost You know, those days are gone. And, and, uh, and, 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 and you, know, you could design the game so that you could bring that back. Instead of instead of you could still have Let's say you're trying to shoot for a four minute game time. Instead of having a three ball game where each ball is a minute and ten seconds, you could do a, go, go to a five ball game where each ball is only, you know, 35 or 40 seconds. You still get the, you still get the, the game time so you get your value out of the money. At least a novice player gets to plunge five balls instead of just three balls. Hmm. So, so there are there are some a lot of thought a lot of thought that I put into if I ever get back into pinball and and try to try to design games to to attract the next generation of players rather than the um, trying to, to trying to get the pinball autos to give it a big thumbs up.
0: Right, right. Hmm. Now, um, Excalibur was another John Trudeau game that you did the rules for. Is that right?
1: Yes. Caliber was a was, uh, it was that was the first game that they really came up to me and it was on a I remember Adolf Seitz Jr. at the time was running engineering. And Adolph came up to me near quitting time on a Friday and said that That, you know, we were basically going to go up with Excalibur. They already had the artwork and everything was done. At the time, it just wasn't really fun to play. I hadn't worked on the rules on the game. I I had already done the rules on a couple of other games that were fun to play. So I think at the time they saw that I was proficient at, at developing rule sets. And Adolf came to me and said, how would you like a challenge, John? And I go, what's that? He says, by Monday morning, I need, I need a rule set for Excalibur, and all you get to change is the black line screen. So any any of the other whenever you screen the playfield, there are you know four or five or six screens, and each screen costs a lot of money to re, to to be remade. So he came to me, and so you can change the black line screen, which is what most of the the typeface is written out on the playfield. But I can't change any of the inserts where they're at. So I basically had to make do with what was already on that playfield and come up with a a new rule set. So I basically worked all weekend and came up with a, came up with a rule set, you know, gave it to the programmer, and that's what Excalibur ended up being.
0: How did, how did that execute? How did that come out?
1: I thought it came out pretty good. It was, it was the, um, it, it was the first, it was, it was the first game that really had a bonus round, as a fact that it was. It was where well, the game's rules changed. Then the prior had a timed event where the task to just complete a task, and then when it was over, if you if you were able to accomplish it, you got the jackpot, and if you if you couldn't, you didn't. When it timed out, I mean, up, to, up to that, it was multi. a you know, multi ball had that. Where you had to do your, make your shots during multi-ball. Once you went out of multi-ball, basically the rules went away. It was the first time that, that we basically changed, you know, all the rules in the play field. So that it was, you had 15 seconds or whatever to accomplish the event in one ball play rather than multi-ball. Hmm. And then and that kind of led to, um uh, Lights Camera Action. That was a, a mode-based game.
0: Now, before lights, camera, action, the last System 80B game you did was Hot Shots, and that was your design, right?
1: Yes, Hot Shots was my design.
0: Okay, well, tell me about that.
1: Hot Shots was going to be an aircraft carrier jet fighter game, and that lot, the ball launcher was going to be like the catapult that launches airplanes off of an aircraft carrier, and all of the drop targets... And there were, I think, 16 drop targets on that game were, were enemy planes. So it was like this action adventure, you know, naval aircraft battle game. And then as we were, as we committed to the game, Data East came out with Torpedo Alley. Right, you know, the coincidence, right then they came out Torpedo Alley. So they held a meeting and they say, we're going to go with this game but we need to change schemes now. So it was one of these things where it was decided in a, me- in a meeting what we're going to do, and we'll just go make it into, because there are so many targets, so we'll just make it into a shooting gallery game. So that's that's how it ends up being hot shots. And as a matter of trivia, um, the guy who had a photographic back glass, and the um, carnival barker, the, the elderly gentleman with the gray hair, is Louis... Giannini, who had been a Gottlieb employee for about 40 or 50 years. Hmm. So, it was really, it was kind of, you know, you know, not, not that's another trivia thing, but that that's kind of a neat thing about that game, is it had Louis on there, and he was basically the tool room guy who made all of our custom parts for us, we need custom parts made by hand, and he was a, a really excellent craftsman. And, and his his you know, skills are greatly appreciated. In my first instance with Louie, was the first time I ever went down and was working on the in the tool room on the bandsaw or a drill press or something. I was probably making a big... I was probably on the drill press drilling inserts for a play field. And, of course, it makes all kinds of sawdust and wood chips all over the place. And Louie... Louis, Solid. I was doing making this huge mess, and he went and got a broom and a dustpan, walked right, leaned them up against the machine I was using, and walked away. <laughs> and it's suddenly telling me, "When you're done, you clean up your mess."
0: <laughs> so now, so Hot Shots—the name stayed the same, but the theme changed. Is that what you're saying?
1: No, the, the name changed too, and I don't remember, I, you see, a lot of times, I, I will call a game something, but the name will change, and the theme will stay the same. Um, and I, I'd have to look at my notes, I don't remember what I called it. Uh, the reason why it ended up being Hot Shots was because I think Connie Mitchell You know, we were in in the meeting, and I think he came up with that name, and and everybody everybody seemed to like it, so that's what it ended up being. You know, we needed a name, and we need need one today. It was like, you know, we were under under the gun and uh, time crunch there to get this thing. You know, changing the artwork was was to get it going, but um, but that was um, that was one of the games that changed the theme. But there were a couple others that changed the theme too either that I had nothing to say or had to do with licensing, and they needed to the license things. so.
0: Now, how about licensing? How hard was it for you to actually get a license theme?
1: Well, it took Dany East to force Williams and us into going into the license, because you know, Joe Kaminkow had been doing that for a couple of years, and it was obvious where you know, basically, you keep up with the Joneses or whatever, is that we had to um, you know start considering licensed games, and you know, licensed games. You know, I have positive and negative about a licensed game. You add you add the element of license approval. And you take away some creativity in the theme. I mean, when you make your own theme up, and and, and whatever you you have control, over the, the creative people, the pinball company, have control over the whole thing. Where if you um, with a licensed theme, like like Mario, not, I mean, Super uh, Mario Brothers. I mean, we're sitting there having to. Every time that we're working on the artwork or whatever, we're having to submit the artwork to the, to the Nintendo and have them say, yes or no, or change this. So it kind of, you know, as long as the game makes more money and sells more, that's the, that's the whole, that's the whole thing you're trying to do. And that's the whole reason for licensing. But I really didn't Enjoy it as much as working on a, on a unique theme. You know, I, I think I only worked on, it's like all the games near the end at Gauntlet were all licensed games. But, you know, all those early games like Diamond Lady and, and, um, Bad Girls and Hot Shots, Life Camera Action were unlicensed. Right,
0: yeah, basically everything before Super Mario Brothers was unlicensed.
1: Yeah, and, and almost almost everything after it was licensed. Right. You know, if you look at, if you look at, um, if you look at, I think Wipeout was it. I'm trying to think of the ones that weren't. Um, there were very few that weren't licensed at that point. It's um,
0: Well, let, let's go back to um, uh, 1989. And after Hot Shots, you did the first your first System Three game, which was Lights, Camera, Action. Now I played that game today, and I had never even seen that game before. And that's a pretty cool game, I gotta admit. It's got the the back box animation thing, uh, I thought was really well done.
1: Well, the um, that game, the did, did the one you play have the floodlights on it?
0: No, this one did not have the floodlights. It it just had the you know, the gun draws, the guy the two guys in the back box that drew the guns.
1: Right. Well the the um the game itself had that had the I wanted to do an animated I wanted to do an animated backlash. And um and I um wanted something that would be very inexpensive because of, of the budget, and I think that the reason why that they, they got it approved is because the the money to, the, the cost to do those was very low. Can't remember at this point how. I got those floodlights on because that was a really expensive unit. My guess is one of our competitors must have put something on the, on the top of the back box, and then the company allowed me to do it.
0: Now, did they all light act, light camera action? Did they all have these floodlights, or just some of them?
1: All of them had the floodlights.
0: Okay, because the one I played today didn't have it.
1: It was a unit. So a lot of them over the years may have been lost, or if if the game was in a place where it had a low ceiling and couldn't fit, that it would have been, you know, not installed, and put it, in a, it would end up being in the back of the person's warehouse. So.
0: Now, what was the purpose of these lights?
1: Well, the lights was to... A lot of the, the artwork was designed with blue light and a red light, and the artwork was designed so that most of the artwork was blue or red. So whenever the lights went on, the playfield lights, I forgot if they went off or were dimmed. I don't remember what we ended up going with. But it creates an ambience. And it, it goes back to what I saw many years before that. There was an arcade, back when I was a player, before I was in the industry. It was in Scotts Valley. It's called Special Effects they had a room set up with I think it was black light or something and then then there were some games that had black light artwork where you know they used the, the fluorescent paint and I think valley's Black Track and Roller Disco and there were several pinball games made that had fluorescent um, paint that would fluoresce with a black when you put that could work into a black light room. And I always thought that was really cool. But then I also know that if you Use a red light on red artwork, or a blue light on blue artwork. That they're almost complementary colors, and you can get a really weird effect if you go between the red and the blue. And I, I, I had made a game called Red Alert that, whenever you went to a red alert, um, the lights, the uh, the floodlights would go on to create tension and a kind of climatic feeling whenever you're at that point in the game. And I basically resurrected it from that game and put it on live camera action because it was a movie and it was supposed to be kind of being the same as the climax. So that's how that unit got on the game. And uh, I think that those that unit was about probably about twenty five or thirty anyway. and that, that's a lot of money.
0: Now is um this was uh, the first System 3 game for you. Was System 3 uh, a much better system d- to work from, from a design point of view? Uh,
1: well, it was a difference of night and day. I mean, there were a lot of features that were on lights, camera, and action, like the catch-up feature, the automatic skill that we just couldn't do before that because System 80B couldn't do it.
0: When you say it couldn't do it, why couldn't System 80B do it?
1: It didn't have enough memory, it didn't have enough drivers. It, it, I think it had to do with more of the memory. It was like the automatic skill feature. Probably oh that program and whatever w- w- would require a lot of memory because it had to keep track of the player, how the player was doing in the game, to figure out what their skill level was in order to adjust the features for that player. And, uh, a lot of people don't talk about automatic skill because I think a lot of people don't know that it existed in those games. But what automatic skill does, it looks at how the skill, it's making decisions on what the skill level of the player is. Whether they're flipping ball flippers at the same time, whether they're catching the ball to show an advanced player, um, what they what they when you have lit shots, how many flips are before they complete, and there's all kinds of data that's being collected on on the players. And what the game is, in doing so, adjusting the timers for the timed rounds so that the beginner would have a lot more time to complete their task than a proficient player would. Huh.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I had no idea. I never even heard of that.
1: So, that lights, camera, action! If you ever look at if you look at the instruction book, you'll see automatic skill as one of the features. And a lot of games after that had automatic skill. I don't know if all of them did, but that's that's the feature that I wanted to put in, you know, uh, all along. I mean, there were a lot of features I wanted to put in the games that nobody would ever that even when I was working for Sega, they never wanted to do. And you know, one of the things was. I wanted to design a system where that the operator could buy the system. It would be a supplemental system. And I wanted to go with other game companies, and it would be a uh, it would be a cell phone. And what the, basically what, what the what the game would do is it would it would use this. So you say uh, you you'd have the cell phones in all your games. And you program one game to call to call in your um, calling at midnight. The next game was, would be programmed to call in at 12:30. So every game is calling in, you know, during you know when you're asleep and transferring data to your to a computer program. So when you get up in the morning or or, you're, or, or you're, you get to work, you can look. And get a, a report from all your games to see how much money they're making. If they're broken, come fix me. And when I talked about this thing, no, but no, nobody wanted at all to do it. You know, I, I always had all these ideas that could never get done. But at least I got the auto skill. And uh, and then the other one was the catch-up feature, where where um, and camera actually had the catch-up feature, where it would. It would look to see, use auto skill as part of it, if it would award the catch up so that you could catch up with the other player's score. Hmm. So.
0: Okay, I've heard of that feature in other games.
1: Yeah, hmm. that was on. We used it on and off in, in maybe uh, half a dozen games, but Live Camera Action was the first game to have the catch up feature. These are features that I wanted in, that I wanted and I could put in the earlier system that I could put in this system. That's why you saw all these features suddenly appear in this one game because I had thought of them but this is the first time we had the chance to implement them. Hmm. You know, John Burris programmed that game and he probably looking back at it, he probably hated me at the time because I had all these features I wanted in this game.
0: Now what about that turning play field, that little mini turning play field? That was pretty cool.
1: Yeah that John Board came up with that. You know John and also the you know, when you play live camera action, it has the, with a ball, watches the ball through the air with those deflector plates.
0: Yeah, I noticed that, yeah.
1: John Borg, you know, John Borg at the time, this before he was a designer, he was working as a mechanical engineer, a mechanical draft person or whatever, at Gottlieb. And he basically would, would, would come up with these cool features on his own. I mean, you know, he would, he would talk about it and, 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 they say, you know, can we put this on? And I said, that sounds really cool. Let's go ahead and put this, I'll, I'll put that on my next game. And What was that was rotating play field? He said, you know, well, well that sounds that's really cool. We'll put it on the next game. And that's what we did. And so then he went to work for uh, Data East. And then, and then obviously was still there until, until Stern. And then I guess when they did their big cost cutting. Thing, you know, seven or eight years ago, he he was one of the ones who was you know, you know lost, basically lost his job. But
0: he he's back at Stern, if that means anything.
1: Oh, is he back at Stern?
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, the, his the next game up is his game. Well, I I don't know much more than that, but I know he's back at Stern now.
1: So that's good. You know, I was I was hoping to try to get back. I was hoping to try because I left Stern.
0: Wait, 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 wait. Let's let's hold off on that story. We're getting there, right? Let's let's work through Gottlieb a little more, okay? Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, like after lights, camera, action, you did Vegas. Tell me about Vegas.
1: Well, that was the company decided that a low cost game. Basically, Silver Slugger, which is a John Trudeau game, was the first game. A low-cost game.
0: Yeah, the street-level game, as they call
1: it. Street-level game that wouldn't have ball hangups, would be highly reliable. They were trying to, were trying to find a niche in the market that no one was exploiting. So basically, they told off all, all, all the designers, and this was a management decision, that we're gonna, no longer going to make games, full feature games with ramps. We're going to start making single-level games. Well, that kind of really played into my hand, being a game rules guy, where, well, okay, all will us do a game that has kind of cool game rules. They I not have to worry about an expensive game. So I did, basically, my two SL games were Vegas and Carhop. And, uh, and both, both the games, they were, you know, low-cost low games. But the problem is, is we found that, you know, the distributor can sell games for whatever they want to sell for, and we had a suggested price, but we found out that most of the distributors, even though they were costing them a lot less than the competitors' games, were trying to sell them for the same price, or just a little bit under, trying to make more profit on the games. Then know after a while, the operators just had had enough of them, and, and, and the sales fell off. So...
0: Yeah, I mean, and this was about 1990 that the street level games were, were happening and, and you're, you're coming out with, you know, like you said, single layer play, single layer play fields, you know, no habit trails, no ramps, uh, you know, as kind of a simplified game, but you're competing against, like, Williams Funhouse. That had to be a tough, a tough road to hoe.
1: Yeah, and that was, that was the, uh, that's what we were up against and, uh, it, it was, it was pretty, I think that if you look at the production numbers on all those games, you'll see that each game made, we sold less and less and less on each game. And then when we went back to regular, you know, fall feature games, uh, with Cactus Jacks and, um, those games, that we started having good sales again. So, it was, um, it was a, you know, a decision that the designers had nothing to say. It was a, the company came and told us what we were going to do, and we just tried to make the best game we could with with what with on that decision. The only thing I didn't like on Vegas was I didn't like the pink cabinet. I didn't mind the pink playfield and plastic shield set, but I wanted that game to have a black cabinet. And they, they said, oh, i got to have a pink cabinet. So, we had a pink cabinet. <laughs> huh.
0: So now, when when they came, when management came to you guys with this street level, you know, simplified, single layer game, what what was your reaction to it? Did you think it was a good idea, or did you think, yeah, you know, we're gonna, we're competing against you know these other manufacturers, this is never going to work, or or did you guys think it would?
1: I thought it was a novelty. I thought one game, one street level game, every two or three years because there was was that operator who has those really, really, really remote locations, but they want something really reliable, and they've got a captive audience, so that location will play any game that works. It doesn't need to be a big fancy game. As long as it works and it's fun to play, they'll play it. But I think maybe one street-level game every two years, two and a half years, maybe as a summer release, because summer games always had the low sales. You know That was the slowest time. would be good, but not every game. And, and both Ray and I were concerned that Ray, Ray wanted to keep working on a, a full feature game um, to have his backup. And, and ironically, in the end, Ray was right, because when, when they decided to go back to regular games, we had to scramble for, for a couple of models to come up with, with games on time, you know. So.
0: Now, when you, when you did scramble, you came out with uh, Cactus Jack in 1991, and that's, that's actually a pretty cool game.
1: Well, Cactus Jacks and both Cactus Jacks But I finished, Riney did the play field ninety. the Riney had brought that play field to like, trying to sell the play field. And that would be maybe three months before we decided to abandon um, SL games.
0: And, and wait, this is Riney, what is it, bang Banginter? Banger. Yeah,
1: okay. and
0: And so he was like an outside contractor almost
1: yes he was an outside contractor and he left the game there for us to evaluate and at the time we weren't we weren't going to make the game you know it was just but whenever we decided to go back to full feature games that game was one it was it was ready it was ready to ready to make it a real game to go down the line and we took advantage of it, you know.
0: Now, did he cut, did he present it with Gottlieb System 3 boards and the software already all done?
1: You no, know, it, it, it had, uh, Data East boards. We had to re-engineer the whole game. But, but, you know, at least we knew that it was a, it was a decent fun to shoot game. They had the shots tweaked. So, it, it cut a lot of development time. Cause a lot of times when you, when you're doing a playfield from scratch, you're just making shots work. You're spending a lot of your time making shots work and uh making it so it can be assembled and all that stuff, and basically Ronnie had already done all that because Ronnie probably spent six months or a year working on that before he brought it in. so we made that game i made I worked on that game, and Ray Tanzer took took it uh for his game uh that he he took on was class of eighteen twelve, which was uh, an old game off the rack, which was a game that we basically when a game had gotten. Was was killed or never made? It went onto a rack so people could use the parts on it. And it was a little rack. Then Ray, Ray just went over there and found an old game on the rack and decided to take it, take it and make, you know, make it into a game. And that that was ended up being the class of 1812, which started off being a game designed by Joe Cam- a playfield designed by Joe Co., uh called 911 Carrera, which was what Joe called it. Hmm. So.
0: Well, that's kind of interesting, and actually, class eighteen twelve is actually a pretty good game.
1: Yeah, you know, it's uh, it was um, you know, considering what we were up against, both both those games came out pretty good because I think I did Cactus Jack in six or seven weeks, where most game or a lot of of course, a lot of my games I, I do them in eight to ten weeks and uh didn't, we didn't have a lot of time to do games, you know. You know, the player doesn't care. The player doesn't care whether you had eight weeks or ten weeks to do a game or a year to do a game. You know, the player plays is the game that's the most fun game to play. So, you know, I was always felt that we were really at a great disadvantage with comparison with Williams Designers because Williams Designers had a year or even sometimes more to do a game and we only had, you know six to ten weeks to do a game. Hmm. Hmm. You know, it's almost like the, 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 the difference between doing a TV show or doing a movie. Alright,
0: right, we're going to take a little break from talking with John Norris of Gottlieb and we'll be right back after these messages. Hi, Pinheads. This is Doc Pinball just reminding you about New York State's largest game room show coming up April 11th through the 13th in beautiful Rochester, New York. Check us out on our website at rochestergameroomshow.com. We are going to have a P3 pinball tournament where you can gain whopper points. We also have a big ball bowler tournament. And as we speak right now, we're supposed to have Capcom's Big Bang Bar making an appearance at this game room show. April 11th, 12th, and 13th, 2008. Check us out on our website for more details and special rates on hotels at rochestergameroomshow.com. Deep in the forests of Eastern Canada, you will find something, well, groundbreaking. And something that's very, very pinball, but something that's really, really small. (laughs) Presenting classic Playfield reproductions. (laughs) Two guys in their basements. We've got the passion, we've got the gear, and we've got the quality doing our very best to remake classic and more modern pinball replacement parts.
1: Classic Playfield
0: Reproductions. Playfields. back glasses, Plastic sets. On the web at ClassicPlayfields.com Alright, we're back with John Norris, game designer for Gottlieb. Right now, what about Surf and Safari? Now that game, that was a full feature game, and that game came out pretty good.
1: Yeah, well, that one was designed from scratch as a full feature game. You know, I was, um, you know, it was probably six months after came out, six months or so after the decision was made to go back to full feature games. So Surf and Safari was a you know designed. As it was supposed to be. So, that game again. That game. That game came out pretty good. It was tweaked, you know, a little bit more than than uh, eighteen twelve and Cactus uh, Jacks, because we had a little bit more time to tweak that game.
0: Now, did that game have any sort of licensing connection at any point?
1: Not really.
0: You know, even the music or anything. What? Maybe the music.
1: Oh, uh, the music, we may, have, we may have done a song or two, licensed a song or two on that game, but we weren't doing game licenses yet. That was before the, actually the first time we were going to talk about doing a game license was class of 1812. We were talking about uh, licensing Monster Mash and calling a Monster Mash. But, but it was too much money at the time. The company thought it was too much money, and ironically looking back, it was cheap. <laughs> yeah, it was like, you know, three thousand dollars or something, you know, one time fee. I mean that's compared to what some of the licenses cost, that was a bona fide bargain. To be able to have called a monster mash instead. But you know, that was that wasn't my decision or Ray's decision. It was management's decision. But at the time there were just see you know, but I'll all step my foot put myself in the manager's point management's point of view. But they hadn't been doing licenses yet. We're just getting into licensing, and they, you know, when you're just trying to do something, you really don't know what you're up against yet. So hmm. all of a sudden, you're seeing this large expense that you didn't have any in any at all in any of your previous games, and that's that's, that's probably the factor why they decided not to go with Nothing once it, once it was digested later on, <coughs> thought, that, oh, maybe we should have done it. Then we start doing it on all the future games. Hmm. So it was part of, well, I guess, it's part of the learning curve for everybody. You know, we all needed to learn how to deal with this new facet with with, with, with with regard to game development.
0: Now, at this time, you were still collecting games at home. You still had a pretty good wood rail collection going.
1: Yeah, I, you know, at this time, i I, you know, I have, at, at that, that point, I had a pretty good career going, making decent salary, having a lot of fun building a pinball collection, you know, I was really happy back then. That was that was a wonderful life I had back then. You know, that was you know, looking back at it, those are that those were some of the best years of my life. That was it was wonderful. You know. Mm-hmm. it was you know like nothing I can you know, nothing I can do change to go back to that time, but that, that was really design you know, working for a pinball company, having this pinball collection and and uh Having a lot of fun. That was great.
0: Now your your next game was the first dot matrix game that Gottlieb did, and that was Super Mario Brothers. Also, that that in 1992, that was that was your first real licensed game, right?
1: Yeah, that was. We got that, and Ray at the time Ray was doing the, the Mario Brothers Mushroom World, so both Ray and I were basically being indoctrinated into licensed games at the same time you know we have you you have to go through the license approval process you know the artwork has to be submitted it has to be okayed you know the whole nine yards and uh you know that was basically at that point after that we never looked back because we did we had good sales on those games and at that point every game thereafter would probably be a licensed game
0: yeah yeah sales on that game basically i mean uh Oh, at Surf and Safari, sold about 2,000 units, and then Super Mario Brothers sold about 4,200. So that things really pumped up.
1: Well, it also has a lot to do with the Dot Matrix display. its You know, a lot of people don't know that we had the chance to be the first company with the Dot Matrix display, because I forget Cherry or whoever it was who came up with that, that full-size display came to us first. This would be a year or so before. And, it was a, it was, and, the, and I think the deal was if you if you get it, well you'll have exclusive rights to use it for a year before anybody else gets to use it. I think we turned them down. Obviously Williams didn't. You know they put it on Gilligan's Island or whatever the first game they had with it, or the pitch and back game they had. Right. And uh, we had to wait. We had to wait the year for you know that exclusivity to run out. But then we we went right ahead and put it on our games.
0: Now, how was that as far as being a designer? Did that change much or no?
1: No, I put the video modes in and things, and I thought that a lot of the video modes were trivial, um, and you know, was, especially but, but on some games, like Super Mario Brothers, it fit the game because it's you know it's 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 a video game license, and and so it made sense in that game, but the. Um, in my, if I were going to start a pinball company today, I might go back and just put LEDs back in the game and get rid of the video altogether. Save the time of programming and and make a game that can sell for five hundred dollars less.
2: Hmm.
1: But that you know but that was you know it fit some games and in and, and Super Mario Brothers was one of the games that it did, it really did fit.
0: Now, did that did the dot display increase the amount of time needed to develop a game?
1: Not so much the time, it meant a couple more people on the staff. One person to program it, and one person to do the artwork. Or, 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 you know, so basically it increased the resources needed to do the game, and obviously added, added, you know, $100 or more to the bill of materials for the game. I think that the dot matrix unit was $100, and the control board probably was for, for probably another $40 or 50 dollars, and then, then also it was a very noisy display, added a lot of noise for like STC compliance, so it made it tougher to to uh, do for the radio emissions testing and things like that. So there were you know, a lot of a lot of things that basically added added to the cost of the game, adding that to the game. I don't know if on all games if it was really worth it or what it gave you. You know, you can know, you can do more elaborate track modes and things like that. But for the actual play of the game, you know, I I would I could see having maybe a, a game that that would. Um, Maybe a cheaper line of games that maybe where it didn't have it, and uh, maybe your deluxe where the arcade has it. You know, again, if you have a, a game in a location where you're competing against a lot of other games, then you need the game to all the bells and whistles. If you're going out in some, some guy's bar, out in the middle of the sticks somewhere, and all they'll, they'll play that game. If if it, if it works, is well lit, and it's fun to play. Well, uh, you know, that's, that's just my thought, but the dot matrix, um, of course, these days are different because, you know, the cost of, of flat screen displays and all you know, that's come, come down so much. But, you know, back in the early 90s when that was coming out, that was a, that was, that was a very pricey addition to the game.
0: So did that increase the retail price of the game, or did they did you have to take a hundred bucks out of there, or a hundred and forty dollars out of the game somewhere else?
1: I think it increased the retail price of the game at the time. Hmm. Now, I don't know, for, you know, that could be researched, but I, I, I'm pretty sure we passed that on to the customer. You know, it's like anything else; as your expenses go up, the price of the the products products has to go up along with it, hmm. and. Uh, you know, of course, of course, the price to the, the the ultimate customer, the player, was ultimately increased too, because that's when you started to really get into fifty cent, you know, really into fifty cent play, right, or, or three, four dollar, or whatever the incentive is. But up until that, had been just twenty five cents a game. So, you know, so yeah, so
0: now your next game was Cueball Wizard, and that was the game you sold the most of, fifty seven hundred units, and that was a really big hit for Gottlieb.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was the game that I put the cube. That was the game where it went to the show, AMOA show. I think it's the only game I ever designed that went to the AMOA show. In all the years I was in the industry, that was the one game that went to the AMOA show. Um, that was the game where I forget who it was. and management didn't like, didn't like the pool ball and thought it got on the way. So I had, during the game's development, so what they did was they said, oh, the, eventually the ball's going to break. You know, the pool ball on the play going to break. So they said, we're going to have to test it. And they set up this, this test fixture that took a, that took a pinball with our strongest coil at point-blank range, maybe an inch from the pool ball, and just fired it re- well, you know, every three seconds into the pool ball. And then in the you know, the people in management were probably all well, sure that eventually the, they're going to come in in the morning and the pool ball's going to be in two pieces. And it sat, it, it, it kept, it went, went and I, I checked it every day, it's going, it's still going. And then one day, they they come in in the morning and the thick test fixture had fallen apart. <laughs> the, screws, the screws fell off and this whole thing had just fallen apart it had gone over a million cycles and there was the pool ball still intact in one piece So well, that passed, it passed with flying colors so then but they still didn't like it so I suggested well why don't we do this why don't we we're gonna, you know, we always test the games in Gala Lanes and Carroll Stream why don't we instead of testing one game let's test two games side by side One will have a pool ball, and one will not have a pool ball. So we did an alternate set of rules. So basically, and the rules are still in the game. There's 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 an adjustment in the game, because that was never taken out. So there's an adjustment in the game for what's with the pool ball or without the pool ball. And but we didn't have, because it was going to the AMOA show, we didn't have time to test it in, 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 the, in the bowling alley. Right? You know, in that, it was, yeah, in Gala Lanes. And so they decided to us, send it to the show, and half of the games will have the pool ball, and the other half won't. On the floor. That's the operators decide. You know, I didn't, you know, because designers didn't get to go to the show, so I get the phone call the, the next day after the first day of the show. So the second day of the show, I get the phone call in the morning, and they said, John, we're putting the pool balls in all the games. So obviously the feedback was we want the pool ball in the game.
0: So, Yeah, and the way that works is there was a little miniature cue stick that um, would it would hit the ball, but when you were playing, the pinball also hit the ball, and it was like the cue ball was in a kind of like a confined area, kind of dead center, middle of the play field, right?
1: Right. There, was, there were two balls. There was an eight ball and there was a cue ball. Right, right. The pinball, the pinball, the pinball would hit, would hit, basically the cue ball was, a, was like a big giant messenger ball. But so there were targets up really high that the pinball couldn't hit, but the pool ball could hit. So you would hit, you would use the pinball to smack the, um, the cue ball, and it would then hit the target, the elevated targets, didn't score the points. So you couldn't score the points with the pinball. You had to, you had to use the pull ball to score the points. And then, then there was a an upper play field with a um, with a I think it was you know I think it was eight ball, I don't remember what ball we put in there. Yeah, eight but, ball. Yeah. But it was a, a turret, one of the turret shooting things that would rotate back and forth and whenever you um it would start rotating back and forth, and then whenever you made your it was your skill shot. Whenever you made your skill shot, it would shoot, and you try to hit the lit targets. So that was basically the plunger skill shot. So that would that would that would be triggered from an opto switch on the ramp. And the problem was that game had uh, there was a res- big heavy duty resistor with an opt- opto switch that would fall off from vibration, and so so a lot so a lot of the the, the um, cue ball wizards out there, um, when the ball crosses the opto, it wouldn't see it because if the resistor fell off, then the switch was basically always open. And then and then there was a, a second opto on the back side over on the left side at when the ball's already past the point of return, when, when it's already going down the, the you know, the other side, another opto there as a fail-safe. So a lot of times, if, you, if you're if you ever playing a game, you make your plunger shot, and it doesn't kick that ball, the turret, the turret shooter, until it's past the point, of no return over on the fail safe switch, that means you have a bad, uh, a bad, a bad opto at the ramp opening. Right.
0: Huh, good tip.
1: Hmm. But, um,
0: but cool, cool game, and, and a big seller for you guys. Yeah. So you, you must have been pretty proud.
1: Real, well, it sold real well, but that was, that was ninety-two when everything was going real well, and uh, and you know that was a that ended up being that was, a, it was a real good game, a really good earner, and uh, I still see a couple on location every now and then.
0: I, I saw one today on location,
1: which is quite amazing because you know at that point the game was sixteen years old. Right. Yeah,
0: I saw one today and I talked to the operator about it and he goes, you know, that, he goes, that damn game, he goes, I got people that come in and he goes, I pull money out of that game every week. He says, I got some customers that just love that game.
1: So, this is amazing. A 16 year old game, I'm thinking of years and years ago, um, you know, a game that would last seven or eight years would be, uh, a really, uh, you know, exceptional, but, you know, he, he, of course, with the, you know, lack the lack of a oh, there only being one pinball company, I guess it's like the Bally Bingo machines. They'll probably be, op- re- be operated for years and years and years to come. Right. You know, it's uh, you know, it's
0: well. Tell me about Street Fighter Two now. Was that, was that a Ray design that you helped with?
1: Yeah, that was a Ray Tanzer design and my rule set, and uh, again, a leather license. And uh, that Now,
0: Cuball Wizard didn't get any licensing of any sort, right?
1: Well, that was a at the time that was a pretty good license because Street Fighter II was a really big hit video game, and uh and it was um it was really uh you know we thought that we had, we we had got we had scooped Data East because Data East would always get those get those real good licenses. But maybe it's because it was Capcom and, it was a, and Data East made video games that maybe we are, we had the advantage on that all along. Cause we did make video games where Williams and Data East did. So right, maybe right. that was a, what got us that license. But it was it was interesting that that's that's the game that had the progressive multi-ball, where every time you went into multi-ball, you had to make a progression of shots, and then next time you went into multi-ball, the game remembered where you were at. So you, so you could continue on the progression well, I always thought that was a pretty cool feature because uh, you know most games when you got to multi ball was a climax and you wanted to get multi ball again you basically start over again and had to do whatever you needed to do where that game it had memory from where you left off so next time you went to multi ball it would whatever shot was you know you had to work your way up the shot up the play field and you had to you would always remember from where, where you were at so, uh,
0: now, now you also helped off on uh, with Teed Off, which was uh, another Ray design, right?
1: Yeah, I did the did the rules, did the rules on Teed Off. At that point, I was doing the rules for just about every game we made. I guess that we were having good success and people liked my rules. Then I basically would be, would be the person to direct, you know, work with the programmers and percentage the games and. And babysit the games on location, and do all all the other tasks that were needed for the person who did the rules. And I, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed doing the rules. So a lot of the, I, I did the rules for um, all of Bill Parker's games, and, and all of Ray's games, with the exception of Wipeout. I didn't do the rules for. At the time, Ray wanted to do his own rule set, so I didn't do them on Wipeout. I think I did them on every other game. Now, what about, um, uh,
0: Gladiators? That was your design, right?
1: Yeah, Gladiators was, that was the game where the theme was changed twice. Originally, when we got the Nintendo license, I think we could make three games. We made, uh, you know, obviously the two Mario Brothers games. We had one more Nintendo game we could, we could use, the license. And I was told to, Pick a game, and, and I basically at the time had their, you know, their home video system, whatever it was at the time, and got a lot of their cartridges, and was playing all these games, and said so I want to do the Legend of Zelda, do a pinball game about the Legend of Zelda, which is kind of like a little adventure game that they have. I don't know how successful it is these days, but back then it was a pretty cool game, and I started basically designing gladiators to be the Legend of Zelda. And then we had, uh, uh we, then we got a license for our new upcoming TV show called American Gladiators. And we had to come out, they decided they had to come out of the game soon because the show's coming out and they wanted to have the game come out at the same time the TV show's coming out. So we dropped Zelda and we decided to make it to American Gladiators. So, but, but this time we're redoing the rules and make make it to an American Gladiators game where you have to go through all these events to get to the end or whatever. And it was designed that, you know, the rules were for change from Zelda to American... The same play field, but the rules were changed, the inserts were changed and all. And then the license fell through at the last minute. So we were kind of stuck, and we decided, well, let's make Gladiators.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so how did you feel that worked out? I mean, it's the game, the game sold. You know, two thousand units. So it, you know, it, you know, for, for all the trouble it was, it sounds like it was worth it.
1: I think it was. I, I really think that if it had been Legend of Zelda. It would have sold more. I really do. But that's you know. But again, you know, it's like a, it's like, like I said earlier, I like having that original theme. But not not when you get at the last minute. You know, you need time to develop something, make it cool, and gladiators are put gladiators we need to come of the game in, in five weeks or whatever we need the artwork now you know so, so that's that, those were my thoughts on, on gladiators uh, gladiators is one of the favorite games i ever designed you know if i ever have a small pinball collection which i intend to do um, i will have a gladiators you yeah. uh, know' a game That's the game to play i thought it was a really it came out as a really fun game but, uh, it now, has a double feature, all, a lot of the really cool features on it, and, uh, and I, re- I really, really enjoyed playing that game. It had, a, it had that, there was a, we weren't allowed to change the EEPROMs to tweak rules. Well, Williams and Data East could. So, you know, if you found out that, the spinners were too much points, then you could always tweak the rules, you know, and just change your EPROM revision number and uh, it's fine. But Gottlieb they wouldn't they could they could they wouldn't allow us to do that. If it was a software bug that that caused the game to crash or something, then yes, they would. But if it was just to change a rule to make the game, you know, a little more fun to play or balanced a little bit better, we weren't allowed to do it.
0: Right, right. Gottlieb always felt that there should just be one ROM revision, not this multiple thing like Williams did.
1: Yes, and I felt the multiple thing was better because you you get to treat the game making to a better game, especially as as it gets out there and you get feedback from customers. Well, evidently there was an oversight. It was was partially my fault. There was a feature where you could just use the upper flipper to keep catching the ball and looping it, catching the ball and looping it, and not put the ball at risk and keep scoring points. And they call what some guys call raping the game. Right. And I wasn't allowed I wasn't allowed to fix it. And so the game got when it basically when the game finally got to production and, and and the players started talking about it, they all basically put big thumbs down on the game because they had this rate feature on it. And uh, if, if, if it had been David Easter Williams, it would have been that would have been fixed. That would have been a really easy fix because basically you make the shot once and then some other switch closure on the play field would be required before you could make the shot again. So you couldn't just sit there and catch, shoot, catch, shoot, catch, shoot all day long, looping the ball. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things that would have been probably two lines of code to fix, but I wasn't allowed to fix it.
0: Now, when your games were on test, um, you, you didn't pick up, uh, you know, something like that?
1: I didn't. I, I was probably working on two games at the same time, or... I just, none of the players did it. No one, no one figured that out yet. Or I hadn't figured it out yet because I don't play like that. I don't, you know, maybe you need to look for weaknesses in the game. I just hadn't discovered it because there are so many other things to do when a game's coming out, especially when you're rushed by at the last minute on a game like that. A lot of the games, they'll, the first time I'll see a complete game with the, with the artwork and the rules and everything all together is when it's on test. Because sometimes the, we get the play fields in, the game is, goes down the line on, on Thursday, gets done on Friday, goes right out on test, and, has, and the production starts on Monday. Well, the day, when old, old production starts, that's, that, that E-Prom is finalized. So it, I would have only had one weekend to find that problem on that game.
0: So you mean they only ran test for one weekend?
1: On a couple of games, only one weekend.
0: Wow, that's pretty short.
1: Yeah, well, that a lot of times where you know it's you know it's to keep the line going and keep people people aren't laid off. You had to do that, and if if you didn't have all, if you were waiting for a part or something to come in, and and um, or or maybe that bug that bug wasn't there, and then it it appeared on the last revision of code before it went out on test, and then we didn't find it on test. I mean, so there were. Basically, it was of all the policies that Gottlieb had, that was my least favorite. That we couldn't tweak a game, and and, and go to a revision two or a revision three point you know, which is standard these days with all software. But they they wouldn't let us do that.
0: Now, what about you know nineteen ninety four World Challenge Soccer? You know, did that and you know at the same time I think Williams was coming out with their soccer. You know, you're
1: gonna love this story. We. World, the, World, the World Cup Soccer tournament was coming out. And about six months before, we "We're going to go get, go, go get the license. Well, we found out that Bally had already had the license. So we knew that Bally, Williams Bally was going to be coming out with a World Cup soccer game. At the same time, we were going to bring, be, bring, that would be going to the spring show. We were going to be bringing um, Rescue 911 to the spring show, and uh, the game before, which which was, which was the World Challenge Soccer, really. The, I guess that the game that was before World Challenge Soccer fell a little bit short, and we saw that we were we wanted to bring this Rescue 911 to the spring show, and the other game is going to end, and we we have about. Six weeks of production. We need to fill the, with just a little filler game. So, what we did was we said, "Well, we're just going to take an existing play field that we have, make a couple of changes, and make it to a soccer game, just to steal, you know, steal the, the spotlight a little bit away from Williams Valley." And uh, so, I took Carhop, a single level game, do a couple of, couple of wire ramps on it. And, uh, and basically we came out with it, and that little goal thing, and we came out with the soccer game, and the funny thing is, is we sold that game out. We we thought that you know, we were going to have to close it out or something, and, and it, it sold. We were only going to make, you know, 1200 of that game, you know, was, we, from the beginning we knew we were only going to make 1200 of those ourselves, so, because we knew we were going to come out with Rescue 911 for the spring show, and, which was our, you know, you know, more of a blockbuster kind of game, and, uh, so it was basically filled the niche to keep the line going for six weeks before the other game was going to come out, and uh, and basically uh, the customers must like the game because we sold we sold that game out. And,
0: uh, yeah, nearly fifteen hundred units.
1: Yeah, I remember it was twelve or fifteen hundred, but that was all. It was when you look at this production statistics, it's lower than all the other games. It was like a flop, but that's all we were going to make on that game anyway because it was just a, a stopgap before the other game came out. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Now, you went for a big license with Shaq and did Shaq Attack. Now, did you ever meet with Shaq?
1: No. The only, of all the licensed games, the only personality we ever met was Robert England on Freddy, And that's because he came in, we flew him in to do the speech for the game. He is the only one I ever met. only personality I ever met. You know, all the years of working on those games.
0: So who was getting these, uh, who in your uh, management was getting the licensing, doing that work?
1: Uh, L.J. Green at the time was working for us, and she was getting most of those licenses. And uh, I think that, you know, I think she's still in the industry working as a consultant for licensing to this day. I, I'm not really sure, because I've lost track of it, but that's, you know, after she left, I think she was doing that, and, and uh, that was, uh, you know, that was the person who got most of those licenses, as far as I know, who got most of the licenses, it was really mostly my department. A lot of the times they'd come to us and say, well, we just got this license, this is going to be the game you're working on, <laughs> you know, because when, when it's a licensed game, you, you make it for the shack, and the shack, the shack license we got through Electronic Arts, because, well, we had someone working for the company. We used to work for Electronic Arts, so we got, they had, Electronic Arts had licensed Shaq, and we basically had, had uh, latched onto that license.
0: Now, that didn't, so that wasn't a competition thing against, again, williams Bally and their NBA fast break?
1: No, I think that we were, we were before the NBA fast break. I think Fastbreak must have come out a year or two later. Okay. I don't know, I don't, I'm not, I don't know the years offhand on the games, but I think our game, our game came out first. and We didn't know about their game. And,
0: uh, were you, uh, were you happy with how Shaq Attack came out?
1: I hated, I hated the artwork. I hated the backlash, ugliest backlash of any game of, of mine. And uh, there was an earlier backlash, a really cool backlash of Shaq breaking a backboard. That was rejected by the licensing company.
2: Hmm. Why?
1: I, think, I have no idea. I wasn't told. It was really cool, and it was rejected. And they wanted this giant thing, and the, 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 I thought the backlash was hideous. The, the nuisance coach on the game... I'll tell anybody who has the game, that's an adjustable setting. You can turn the coach off.
2: <laughs>
1: and I was, again, marketing one of that on there, and uh, I had no say in that coach. You know, the one who's irritating and keeps telling you what shot to make.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you can turn him, and I, and I, made, him, I made the program put the, the adjustment in the game. I had to, we had to ship the game with it on, coach on, but it's in there. You can turn that coach off. And anybody who has that game, I'd recommend you to turn that coach off because he he will give you a headache after a while <laughs> other than that the game is fine right
0: yeah it is kind of an ugly artwork you know
1: i, I, I have all the games that that and the Vegas backlash and you know the, you know the Vegas backlash Vegas cabinet and the entire package for jack attack were where the where the artwork speaking, were, were my worst, you know, the games and my games were the worst.
0: Now, uh, you worked on Stargate and Waterworld, which were both Ray Tanzer games. Tell me about that.
1: Well, Stargate, Stargate, a lot of people really, I, I did the rules and Ray did the play field. It was a really good game, and we're all really happy with the rules. We all went to the, pr- the premiere of the movie Stargate. I went back and wrote the rules, and, um, you know, I thought they came out really good. Then Ray did, after that, R- 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 Waterworld. world supposed to be another big, you know, that was, Stargate, the movie did okay, but Waterworld, the movie, flopped. But Ray had made, the game that they came out with uh, was not the game that Ray designed. They decided that must have been when we started getting into financial trouble and they came in, they cost, they costed that game down by probably two or three hundred dollars and one day Ray went on vacation and the management came in and they just arbitrarily took four or five units off the game, mechanical units off the playfield, and uh, put them on Ray's chair. So when you come back from vacation you saw the unit sitting on his chair and realized that they had been yanked off his game. And uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, the company was struggling at that point, and, you know, financially and all, so they, they were costing the game down. But the game Waterworld really wasn't the game that was originally designed. So.
0: Yeah, Stargate was a, a quite a good game, and uh, you, you sold 3,600 of them, but Waterworld, yeah, you only sold 1,500 of them, and that was, what, 1995, so that, you know, things were starting to come down for Gottlieb.
1: Yeah, yeah, and say a lot of people don't realize they think that pinball killed Gottlieb. Pinball did not kill Gottlieb; it was gaming that killed Gottlieb.
0: What, what do you mean?
1: Well, Gottlieb, in the early '90s, when pinball was really going well, decided to buy a company called SMS, which made lottery terminals. Basically, they're not slot machines, but they're they're um, there are poker machines that state lotteries run. That state lotteries can run um, legally to play poker machines on in bars and taverns and places. And in the, in the company wanted to diversify and get into the video because at the time, the state lotteries were just coming out and it looked like an emerging field that could make a lot of money. And maybe maybe eventually get into full gaming, you know, full slot machines. So they paid the company paid a lot of money for this company SMS. And uh, couldn't get any licenses, so this this SMS just became a bleeding wound and and eventually you know they did, they couldn't sell any games anywhere, and the company couldn't basically blood the company dry and if you even if you look at those last few games, pinball games, they sold better than a lot of the single level games did, but because of the bleeding. You know, the financially bleeding wound from SMS, you know, trying to pay interest on this loan for a company not selling any product, brought the company down. Huh.
0: Interesting. I, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. yeah. You, know, you can do the research and you can, you know, you know, find out more particulars on it. But the way, from my point of view, that's the way I saw it. You know, if you look at the, those last few pinball games, I don't think there were any pinball
0: games that sold less than a thousand units. Yeah, the the lowest selling one, at least of your games, was Mario and which was your last Gottlieb at the end in nineteen ninety five, uh, and that sold uh, what eleven uh, more than eleven hundred units. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: see, see, if you look back at the single level games, I bet Carhop sold less
0: than that. Yeah. Yeah. Like Deadly Deadly Webbed sold eight hundred units, for example. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's that's what I'm saying. Is I'm saying it wasn't. But pinball wasn't as dark of a year as, as those years, but we survived those years because we, we, could, we could make it on selling so those low amount of pinball units. Because all you do is you just cut back your, you know, lay few ball from the factory and, and survive those lean years and, and, and gear back up when pinball comes back. But, you know, it wasn't pinball. Pinball wasn't the culprit, it was uh, gaming.
0: Interesting. Now, tell me about Mario Andretti. That was your last Gottlieb.
1: Mario Mario Andretti was the game that I really, at that point, wanted to design a game for the average player, just for the average player. I really didn't care about pinball wizards. You know, I wanted to put features on there for them and stuff, but I wanted to do... Um, a game for the average player, so I put automatic ball time percentage you know, on that game. And uh you know, basically the automatic ball time percentage was it looked at the ball the ball time that the average player at that location had, the player could, the operator could adjust the ball time to what they wanted to and the game would adjust features to hit that ball time. And uh, we could do that because they had that center post, so we could raise the center post, you know, you know, and time it out or whatever, and uh, and um, you know, make it make the make the make the game hit that that set ball time. So that was kind of the feature on that that I was pretty proud of. And we also, at that point, we were starting to get uh, pinball league pinball league software. We were ready to go with that, and all kinds of other cool stuff that that never got into games. So, now
0: you were um, how you how Gottlieb kind of closed. You kind of have a depressing story about that. Are you, are you willing to tell us that?
1: You mean about when they brought us all down to the lunchroom and gave us our pink, pink slips?
0: Well, prior to that, like a month before that, you were buying a new house for your for your pinball collection, and and what happened there.
1: Well, I had, I had, up until then, I had a, a house without a basement, so I had a, pinball full of, uh, a living room full of pinballs and a couple of mini storages with pinballs in them, and one of the bedrooms had pinballs and had a workshop, and I decided, you know, I was just about two years before that, and, and, and pinball sales are still pretty good. I really want to get a house with a big basement, so I could have all my collect pinballs up and playable. Now, I'm not a big risk taker, and and I decided you know, I'm, I get, I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to buy it, buy a new house, have a house built for me with this huge basement, and uh, and I'll be unfortunately I'll be financially vulnerable for a couple of years. But at the time, things were looking really good, so I didn't think I was taking that risk. So it took about a year to build the house or so. And then I'm, in, in that. And then I move into the house, and it was ten days after I moved into the house that the company declared financial, that it came and finally announced to everybody that they're having financial difficulty. And I didn't, and I, I didn't see a clue of this going because the sales had been like a thousand units or more of each game, so I didn't think it was anything, any big deal. But they declared financial difficulty, and uh, that was ten days after I closed on the house. And uh, and I'd say six weeks later the company
0: was closed. Yeah, but didn't you like go and ask them if there was any you know, if there was a problem or something and they kind of said no, 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 there's no problem?
1: Yeah, yeah, I had, I had, I had, I had I had, because I, I think they did do a layoff maybe three months before that and they said there was no they said there was no problem, but that was because they were, at the time I didn't know that, they were in, in discussions with, with Sega, because Sega, Sega had maybe it was before Sega bought the East. I'm not really sure of the timeline, but they were in discussions with Sega to um, to buy out the company. They thought that they thought that Sega was just going to take over the company and everything would be fine. I think that's, I think that's what it was. Hmm. Then the Sega deal deal fell through. Then after that, that's when they declared financial difficulty and. Uh, and then eventually close the company.
0: Now, what is this about the lunchroom meeting?
1: Well, they just, they just basically brought, brought us all in the lunchroom for a meeting, and the, they were basically the, 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 they were down there with pink slips that everybody. the Company is now closed. You can get your personal possessions off your desk. Yeah, you there was a guard to take. There's a guard. You were escorted with a guard to go back up and get the stuff from your desk. And uh, and my biggest loss was. On my company computer, I had had all my uh, pinball league and all the data and research I was doing to do uh, handicapping, pinball handicapping, and league play and all that, and that was all on my computer at work, and that was all lost.
0: You mean they wouldn't let you recover anything from the computers?
1: No, no, they wouldn't. You had to, you had to, you had to, you had to take 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 your personal possessions, put them in a cardboard box, and leave right away.
0: And you know what did uh, what did you do at that point? I mean, you you did manage to get a job over at at uh, at Diddy slash at Sega at one point, right?
1: Yeah, I got a job there. Maybe in two a month, two or three months afterwards. But, see, at first they they kept saying, you know, people saying we're going to get a financial back and we're going to reopen this thing. We're going to, you know, it was still it was still kind of optimistic. We're going to reopen this thing, and when it became when, after they have then they decided also that next thing you know, there's an auction. I guess they had, that, that they still had maybe some possibility to do a last minute deal. I think they had a, a, financial backer who was gonna do it. I'm not really sure. But they seemed like they had, they still had an optimistic point of view that, that we're gonna be going back to work. And then next thing you know, they're gonna have, oh, we're gonna have the auction. And then the day of the auction, you knew it was all final. So, about, about a week after the auction, I went to work for Sega. As a quality control person, because they couldn't, because the way Sega does it is, they only have a window to hire people once a year in engineering when they do with a new budget, and they couldn't get me in until that window in three months from then or whatever. So I came, went in, worked for three or four months in quality control, and then I finally went into, into engineering as a game designer. And uh,
0: now, how was the company? You know, what was the difference in, like, company philosophy between Gottlieb and, and Sega, and Data East slash Sega? Uh,
2: it's.
0: You know, the, the culture as it may be. The what? You know, the company culture. Was it dra- dramatically different?
1: Not really. Um, it, it was set up, I think it was more Data East slash Sega, or, cause the only in with a Sega was basically, the at Gottlieb, the game designer was responsible for the rules, where at Sega, it was more like Williams, where the programmer was responsible for the rules. So the only time I got to do rules at Sega was Golden Q, because that was my concept, and games that Neil Falconer would program, because he really didn't like well, I guess he really didn't like doing the rules or whatever, or Joe Kamenko wanted me to do the rules on some of the games. So I worked heavily on the rules sets for, for Viper and for um, Godzilla. But the games that Lonnie Robb programmed, Lonnie didn't want me anywhere near the rules on those games. Hmm. They, were, they were basically his games. you know. Hmm. I, so I didn't, didn't get to work on those rules. The only game that Lonnie programmed that I did the rules for was Golden Q, because that was a uh, you know, that was my concept from from the beginning, and uh, but all, other than Golden Queue, you know, any games that Lonnie did, I basically had no say.
0: Now, Golden Q—they never really actually made. What was the deal with Golden Q?
1: Golden Q was, it was a uh, tournament game that um, that basically the idea was to have a. With the, um, Golden Tea Golf, that incredible technology it makes, right. We wanted to do a, work with incredible technologies using their infrastructure, but do a pinball game. So I was told to come up with a pinball game where the player could pay an, an entry fee and play and, and basically get cash prizes. And, uh, so I, well, with Golden Q, with Golden Q, Uh, when we went from Sega to Stern Pinball, it was basically, um, the project was dropped. Why?
0: Why would would they drop it?
1: Mostly of concerns over cheating. Because with a video game, you can't cheat to get a high score. A pinball game, you can slide the glass and cheat by hitting switches with your finger. And I, I had suggested instead of giving cash prizes, have a location cash prizes for the location, so that way the operator wouldn't be cheating because because they're not can, he's not going to cheat his cash-paying players, and then the players w- w- would wonder who's this person who got who won the tournament. So, so but but the for the national thing, you know, prize. My suggestion was instead of giving cash prizes, you give invites to a tournament where you have to come and play in person. So you could still win cash prizes for the bar, but for for the USA, instead of winning cash prizes, maybe the top five places would be given invites, you know, every, you know, at the end of each tournament cycle, the top five players would be given invites to come to the regional tournament or something like that. Hmm. So basically, you you would, so so only good players would prevail, you could cheat and and win money. You'd still be forced to play games against real players. But they didn't want to. Didn't want to go that route, and, and the uh, the game was dropped.
0: Yeah, the game kind of didn't. The game.
1: It's the best game I ever designed.
0: It was. It was the best game you ever designed.
1: Best game I ever designed.
0: Now, did it morph into Sharky Shootout?
1: Yeah, you know, they because gave it to they gave it to John Borg. and John Borg with the with the mutual um, scoring changed it into Sharky Shootout.
0: Now, why was it the hitting, best game you ever designed? But, see, the
1: problem with the tournament was that. With pinball being a game of skill, how are you going to get average players to play in a tournament where good players are playing in? It's like me, like you or me, trying to play pool in a, in a pool tournament, a national pool tournament. It's you know, you're not even going to try because you know you start, you can't stand the chance, and you don't want this tournament to just be for aficionados. You want it to be for average everyday, everyday people. My thing was in the in the score in a typical pinball game, the score difference between a, 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 a poor player and a good player is five or six fold. So if I if my best score best game on this pinball machine is thirty million, and I see the highest score table of two hundred fifty million, I'm not even going to try to play in the tournament. So what I did was I made I made it like a real pool game, where the game. Instead of it being what a game where good players play longer, the good players play shorter. When you complete the goal, the game ends. And and, and, and all the players play all the shots. are. There were, I think, ten shots that you had to make. And when you complete the ten shots, the game ended. Hmm. And you got unlimited balls. I think there was a five minute limit or something. But basically, every time you lost the ball, you could replunge it. There were no balls in play. It's like pool. It was you play until you complete the last shot. Right. And, of course, at this point, good players will play faster because they're more proficient with the shot making. So a, 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 a good player's game might last a minute and a half, but the lousy player who's not going to win the tournament is going to get more entertainment because their game's going to last three or four minutes. And the way it worked is every shot, all the shots, when you completed all that last shot, your score is ninety nine million. So whether you're a good player or a bad player, your score is ninety nine million. But then there's a countdown bonus that starts at one at one million and counts down. When you complete the last shot, the countdown bonus value is added to your final score. So if that player plays in a minute and a half, the countdown bonus may only go down two hundred thousand points. So you'll be at you know, 99,800. Well, if you're a lousy player, that countdown bonus may have counted down 500,000 points, so his final score will be 99, 99 So it looks like there's only three or 400,000 between the good player and the bad player. Hmm. That's the that mutual sort scoring. So basically we're saying that the score is going to be close.
0: And how did that game go on test?
1: The game, the game never never really went on test. We took it to some shows, pinball expos, and and herb store or whatever. But the game, the game, was really all along a ruse to to try to steal thunder away from uh, Williams Pinball Two Thousand. In my opinion, I don't know it for a fact. In my opinion, though, it was all it was never really meant to. To, I guess if it really if they, it solved that cheating problem, we would have made it. But it, in the end, it was it was never really meant to be.
0: Hmm. Now, why was that to steal thunder from Pinball 2000? How was it going to accomplish that?
1: I don't know. It's just just looks so so like Because whenever we were working on it, we took it to Pinball Expo. And we took it to the shows, so it ended up being in trade publications. And we're working on this. You know, it makes it look like we're working on something revolutionary because everybody knew that Waves was working on Pinball 2000, so right. I think it was just a, I think it was just a, uh, a marketing thing, promotion. Hmm.
0: Now, what about High Roller Casino? You, you worked on that, right?
1: Yeah, I did the uh, play field and the concept of the rules. I didn't write the rules because I was gone by then. And I said I, you know, I had the play field. The play field was almost exactly like I left it when I left the company. They added a couple of inserts, but even all the inserts are the same, the point play- shots are all the same. That's basically the game that I left with, with um, you know, tweaks and stuff obviously as their percentage in the game. But I just wanted a, I wanted a pinball game, a Vegas, a full featured Vegas style pinball game that were the, were the, the gambling games that you're playing as, are close to the real as we can get. You know, like when you're, when you're playing whatever it is, blackjack, you have to, you know, hit and hold or whatever, trying to make them, you know, just like the real versions, the casino versions of those games. Right. That that was basically the concept of that game. But then um, when uh, Stern consolidated the two buildings and went from two buildings to one building, they went from, I was in the non-smoking building, and they went from the non-smoking, they closed the non-smoking building and put everybody over to the smoke-friendly building. I left i i i resigned, I resigned on the day of the change you know well I, I gave my notice long you know that I'd be leaving on the on the, when they moved probably three months' notice, but that was my last day as the last day they had the non-smoking building open
0: yeah you you had health problems or something that couldn't deal with smoking
1: yeah i uh a little bit of asthma and um, breathing problems sometimes and uh and it's aggravated by cigarette smoke. And I can't be anywhere near a cigarette. So I was basically forced out. Right.
0: But that wasn't intentional on their part, right?
1: No, It wasn't targeted toward me. It was targeted towards, they didn't want people taking smoking breaks and to leave their desks. Right. So it was just, it was just a matter of, of trying to, you well know, Gary, Gary is very good at running a company on a shoestring. I mean, he's, Financially, uh, you know, but, you know, he, obviously he's the only company to remain, and a lot of it's because of his able to to cut, you know, to to run things on a shoestring, and uh, and the, the, that decision at the time was made so that people would be at their desks and and uh, you know not taking smoking breaks, so, and that was uh, you know I under the decision I left and. I thought I left on good terms, but, you know, they, you know, I've tried to make efforts towards doing a game for them and, and to no avail, you know, in recent years.
0: Right. So, you, so you're still interested in getting back as a pinball designer again?
1: Yes. Right now I'm in grad school and I work a couple of days a week, you know, at, at a job. I'd rather be working a couple of days a week working on a play field. Right, but you know it's maybe maybe in the, maybe in the future with the, the weak dollar and and the um, struggling economy. See, pinball is always a, a industry that did, did that did very well under a struggling economy and weak dollar.
0: Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that too when I talked to you before uh, the interview. You said that uh, pinball always does well in a weak economy, which is kind of you know backwards with well, what you might think.
1: Well, remember when it was. It, Pinball was born during the Depression, in the 1930s. It, it's a, week of, it's, a it's, it's a recession, depression. It's always done well in recession, depression times, and in times of prosperity, it's done poorly. Like the late 90s, times of prosperity, and, uh, and then a weak dollar because it's a because when we have a weak dollar it's it's an export product, you know, it becomes more appealing to people to buy over from overseas because they can get more from their currency to buy more pinballs. So it's I think right now, you know, we're looking into this in a recession's coming. A weak dollar, it might be a good time for our pinball company to be an upstart.
0: And and you'd be interested in getting involved with that obviously.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. If I if something like that happens, I'm gonna at least make an attempt to try to try to try to you know work something out or be part of be part of a company.
0: Now, what do you think? Have you seen the new Stern games? You know, in the last couple three years, have you seen them? What do you think?
1: I haven't seen any games. The last new game I saw was T3. There's not any games around where I live. Hmm. There's no no new games. They're all old games. All the games around here are, are older games.
0: Now, why is that? Do you think?
1: Because because the an operator can go to an auction here, and they can get a '90s game for a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars instead of spending three times that much for a new game. Right. And in, in the new games not going to make them that much more money. Right. Right. And then it comes back to ROI, return on investment. That's you know that's what that's why I you know that's
0: yeah because your feeling is is that if a new company did come out that they they have to have a price point that's lower than what Stern is currently at.
1: Yeah, I, I, I the game that I'm yeah you know, I've done a business plan for uh, about a year ago. I was trying to get people interested start so doing a startup company, and I got a business plan together. And and, and I figure that if I can come out with a pinball that sells for $29.95, you know, street price, maybe suggested retail would be $34.95 it really sells for $29.95 out of the distributor. I'll if I buy it because it's a little bit more than a used game, but then they get a brand new game, you know, a little more reliable and a little more modern. And, and make themes that appeal to kids. Get get the kids started. You know, the, t- the fifteen to twenty-four year old make games that make appeal to them.
0: Now, what do you think of of Herb Silver's and his startup of these classic Gottlieb games digitalized? So you were involved with that project, huh?
1: Yeah, I pretty much did the playfield design, and uh, and worked on worked worked with Herb and Riney for. Several years
0: now. When you say you did the playfield design, I thought the playfield was largely based on King of Diamonds.
1: It was, but basically you have, still had to do the, the layout and the drawings, and I did the drawings for all the mechanical parts. You know, so I did a lot of the of, of that type of engineering that that was non non software based. Ronnie did the he designed the PC boards and the software. I did the uh, designs for all of the um, you know unique parts, and the play field layout, and the inserts, and...
0: Do you think that they can sell that game?
1: I think they can sell some of that game, and it's like the, you know, it's like a few years ago when the company came out, they copied the 10, you know, the 10, 15 jukebox, and they and played CDs. Right. I mean, there's always going to be some customer who... Is not an operator trying to buy something for the house and wants to look good in their rec room and look like it's like a vintage game. Yeah, I think that uh, they'll get some good sales.
0: Oh yeah, pinball. So pinball two thousand. So you, you guys, you mentioned that you guys got some kind of idea about it. Tell me how you guys knew about it, what you knew, and when you first saw it, what your reaction was.
1: Well, Ray Tanzer and I both figured out what it was about probably about a year before it came out when it was announced and the reason why is because we both worked at Gottlieb premier technology and we knew see we didn't know who the designer of pinball 2000 was we thought it was probably John Trudeau because John Trudeau had that a concept game with pinball 2000 back at Gottlieb it would have been done probably in the early 80s.
0: Right. Yeah, I remember an article about it in the Pin Game Journal.
1: Yeah, it was his ghost game. You'd have to talk to him about it. But we figured out that it was, it was probably a video version of John Trudeau's ghost game concept. And that's basically exactly what it ended up being. So basically when we saw the game, it just confirmed our suspicions.
0: Did you think it was well executed by Williams?
1: Yeah, I thought it was pretty well executed. I mean, I thought the, the bill of materials was probably incredibly high on on the game. And in what, in, in, um, I thought that the mistake that Williams made with, with the platform was the same mistake that Gottlieb did with the SL games. In that step, it's something that the industry could probably absorb one game like that maybe every year to two years. But to go just to abandon regular traditional pinball and go all of Pinball 2000 was like, kind of like Outlet when they abandoned full feature games and went to single level games.
2: And right. basically,
1: in my opinion, they, they didn't learn from our mistake. Is hmm. that you basically, that what they should have done is brought, kept on going with regular pinball games and brought one out to see how it does. And then, and then, and then from that, the sales and its reception, and, and then you basically make subsequent models.
0: Right, and then you could have multiple price levels, you know, like the dot matrix one would be less expensive than the 2000s. Yeah, and
1: they could have, and they could have done that. So my, so I was, and actually we were all really surprised when they just were, the only games that they were going to make following Revenge from Mars onward were Pinball 2000 games. And um, I was kind of surprised, and I think everybody else was, but that was, you know, and I really don't know what what made that decision to do that. You know, what what was there, why they did that, but, you know, because I wasn't there. But, you know, I thought that, like the, um, some of the future models that we never saw, it sounded like that they were going to make the each game a little bit better and better, but I, I really thought, thought that they should have made regular dot matrix, you know, traditional pinballs, and and came out with maybe one of those models per year. And, uh, and, and you know, if they did, then maybe they'd still be in business today, you know.
0: Yeah, the gambling thing bit them, was the bug that bit them, too. I, You know, I, I think that the management really didn't want to do pinball anymore. They wanted to make slot machines.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, as long as you made money with pinball, it's like, you know, if they were losing money, I could see getting out of pinball, but if they were actually making money, it's probably um, something that they should have Maybe continued, but you know, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I can't be real objective about the decision because I like pinball, you know. Right. It's, it's, um, you, know, you know, Williams did have a lot of expenses on their games for developing their games compared to the other companies because of, of the way that they set it up where they had separate teams work on the games and, and they had a lot of time to do each game, so it must have cost them a lot of money. To, um, you know, develop each game because of that. But they could have, in my opinion, maybe streamlined if they were starting to lose a little bit of money or not make as much as they have been in previous years, they could have maybe streamlined it a little bit and and cut back and, and, uh, and been profitable again. But, you know, I really don't know. Since I don't know, I can't look at the books, I really don't know. But I think back to Pinball 2000, yeah, it was a pretty cool concept. But, um, I think that it was border kind of more bordered on novelty, and which is probably really good for certain locations where where the players aren't really you know diehard pinball players, and they and they and they basically were video game players crossing over to pinball. So you know because you can have the superior graphics and, and video graphics on the Pinball Two Thousand platform. That can be part of the experience of playing the game that you can't with a traditional pinball.
0: Well, speaking of which, like if you were gonna, if you could have like a little time machine and go back in time, would you want to be a designer in in any particular era? Like you know, say a, a game designer in the pre-flipper era, and the wood rail era, in the '60s era, or the '70s EM era, or early solid states, or you know, um, classic. Dot Matrix or or, current, or Pinball 2000? I mean, if you had an era that you could pick the design in, what would it be?
1: Hmm. Well, I really like games from, you know, as, as a player from the games from the 50s on forward. But really, I I would pick Solid State Era because there's so much more you can do with the games in the Solid State Era. You know, you're not limited to you know, the cost of putting in an extra relay in to make this feature where it's just a little bit more programming to make the feature. So you can really put more features in a game, you know, from, you know, the solid state era on. And, uh, but like I say I'm really, as far as the player is concerned, I really enjoy games from the early 50s all the way to the present day. You know, I'm gonna, I don't know if I really have one favorite era over another, but there are certain things that amaze me what the designers were able to do, like Wayne who had just a set amount of relays to put on and a couple of step switches and the limitations of basically a flat play field and make a really fun game.
0: Yeah, and speaking of which, I mean, did you think, you know, like, take a game from the 50s and its play appeal, did you think that, you know, that a lot of that was maybe lost as time marched on, or do you think that games really just evolved and did get better as time went?
1: I think that as time went on, the games evolved with the With respect to entertaining and entertaining the player, and um, of course the licenses, which didn't exist in those days. As far as gameplay itself, you know, I there's there. If I had basically, if I when I start my collection again someday, I'm not gonna. I'm going to have a very mixed collection as far as eras. I'm going to have a few fifties, a few sixties, a few seventies, a few eighties, a few nineties, and so on. Um, I just think that as time went on, that the game changed and evolved to be to appeal to a different kind of player. And you know, say I think I said said previously is that I think that. A lot of the new games coming out in the last ten years or so are really oriented to be designed towards baby boomers. You know, especially with a lot of the themes. That's not all of them, because there are some themes that, um have come out in the last, you know, five years or so that weren't, but...
0: Yeah, yeah, like Lord of the Rings or Simpsons or something, right?
1: Yeah, well, even, even the Simpsons, you know, I, I, Simpsons has been around for 20 years, maybe not baby boomers, but then I don't think the Simpsons really appeals to the 15, maybe because it's an animated show, but I don't think it really appeals that much to um, the, the traditional pinball demographics age group. Um, but yeah, got Lord of the Rings and maybe Roller Coaster Tycoon and and some of those, but then then I guess. There are some titles like Monopoly that appeal to everybody, you know. So I can't say all, but but there are a lot in there that are basically it looks like you know, okay, it's something that you know people who are my age would really like to theme and you know, thinking of, you know, uh, you know, back when I was a designer, we were making games that tried to appeal to a different demographics than, than, than I see today.
0: Well, speaking of which, like games from the fifties. I mean, do you think that the, the attraction, or at least the initial attraction was the artwork, or do you think it was the gameplay, or a little bit of both? And as time progressed, did those things change to where the artwork became less important, and the gameplay became more important, or vice versa?
1: Well, I think the artwork is always a critical importance, especially in getting that first impulse player to try it once. I mean, it's, it's, I was so disappointed on a couple of my games I thought it had, had inferior artwork because I thought that, you know, you don't even get that first quarter in the machine.
0: Well, what games, what games did you have that you didn't like the artwork?
1: I did not like the artwork on Jack Attack. Right. And I really didn't like the, other than the play field, I didn't like the artwork on Vegas. Right. And, um, and I think that after they get that first quarter in the game, or you know, or the first play, then the game holds, then the play field, the design of the game, that's, that's holds them. At that point, the artwork is, if they had fun on the game and they like playing the game, they'll play it again. But you know, to get that person to play that first that game for that one time, then the best example, a good example is even a good license. I remember when I was working at, at Sega, um, slash Stern, and we came out with South Park. Is that when we put that on location, I saw a lot of people playing that game, fixing the theme and the artwork that normally would never play a pinball machine.
2: Right.
1: And then if they, if they really had enjoyed the game, then they'll come back and play it again. And ironically, you might be, that might be recruiting new pinball players. So that's the ultimate thing is you, is you get people who wouldn't play pinball to try it. And then they become a pinball fictionado. And they'll play future models. it's like building um building a new gen you know building the next generation of players is really dependent on on theme and artwork in, 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 you know if you see how I coming from there yeah you know if they really enjoyed the game and they had uh, you know, and they and they got their their money's worth out of the game and they want to play it again, then they might try pinball again okay oh, I really don't like that game. let's try it let's, let's try this one too, you know and uh That's, so my, in my thoughts is the art, the artwork gets the, gets the first play and the game keeps them coming back.
0: Well, was there anything in the 50s of the wood rail era that you felt was really, uh, the key draw, the key, you know, either the artwork or the design or the multiple, you know, ways to win specials or was there anything in the 50s you thought that was particularly unique or do you think it was just, you know, right time, right place?
1: Well, I think that at the time, you know, obviously you didn't have the big licenses, but then if, but if you look at the themes of the games, they were popular themes, like things in the 50s, westerns, and space, and, and things that were popular in the 50s were on the games. So maybe they didn't have that, that, that movie license or TV show tie-in, but they were things that people could identify with, popular themes. So I think that in, along those lines, it was the same thing where it's a, you know, you know, you're, you have the, you know, Sputnik going up, and then the space race, and next thing you know, in the late 50s and early 60s, you have all these space games. It must have been, in three or four years, there must have been a half a dozen space team games come out. And, uh, I mean, basically that was true, you know, through... And then in the, in the late '60s, early '70s, all these hippie psychedelic kind of themes coming out. So they were always trying to tie into to pop you know, popular culture with the themes of the games. Right. So whether it was the '50s, '60s, or up until up until the you know, Valley Wizard, when when licenses were established on pinball games.
0: Right. But, you know,
1: prior to that, you still saw popular themes on games, and again, you know that's. Trying to get that first play on the game.
0: Did you ever try and get a you know, or encourage any of the people that you work for to get a particular license, something that you wanted to, to, you know, to work on?
1: I asked for a couple and never got any. I asked for Monopoly early on. I asked for. Let's see.
0: When you asked for Monopoly, was that with Gottlieb or with Sega Stern?
1: That was with Gottlieb. It was too expensive. Or oh, they thought it was going to be too expensive and they didn't look into it. I don't know. We didn't get that. With, with Sega Stern, Joe Kamenko, that was his department. He got all the licenses and you know, he's the best in the industry at doing that. So I never even tried. It was, you know, you know Joe was always one step ahead, you know, one or two moves ahead of everybody and, and he you know, always got the best licenses. Um but back at, at Gottlieb, there were a couple I asked for and, uh, and I, the only one that I, I knew that I asked for that I initially got was when, when we had the second Nintendo license and I asked for The you know, Legend of Zelda after evaluating several of their, their you know, their license properties. And I had started on the game, and then then then, then we got the American Gladiators, and that's which I have already talked about.
2: Right, right.
1: That was kind of one that I kind of asked for, but but I had a narrow range to choose from, and uh, and most of the other ones were basically the, our marketing department got, and we were told that we we're going to do this game, and and they saw which designer had the most interest in that. Licensed and that designer got the game. Hmm. Hmm. You know, that was, um, that was, you know, that was the way that that company operated. Right, right.
0: Okay, well, cool, John. Is there anything else that, uh, you know, you want to throw out there?
1: Not that I can think of right now. i am probably think of something later, but then it's too late. Um, all what I have to say. Say is is that you know I love I love being in the industry all those years and it was the best years of my life and I really miss being uh, in in pinball We're kind of on on to the next stage I'm a graduate student right now I'm going back to school kind of my master of fine arts degree and hopefully I can start over in another career after I get my degree or maybe pinball will come back and I'll be able to get back in the pinball and you know hopefully hopefully the latter happens but if not I have my I'll have my self-covered and, and have my, my degree.
0: Right. Well, cool. I really do appreciate you you coming on and, uh, and talking to us about it. It was a great, great, great interview. Great. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Claudia. Uh, good luck with the interview, and uh, I'm, always, I'm always willing to talk to Okay.
0: I'd like to thank John Norris for joining us tonight on TopCast. We really appreciate his time. And I hope you all come back and hear us again on TopCast, the internet pinball radio show.